Hello, welcome back to Honor of Kings. I'm Sean Griffin. And I'm Ken Heidebrecht. Hi, Sean. How are you doing, buddy? Hello, Ken. Hey, welcome back this week. Um, man, we've got a fun show this week, don't we? Yeah, we're going to be getting into some chapters that um, are controversial. Not like any of the other ones weren't or anything, but this one is one we'll probably end up spending the bulk of the episode kind of uh, expounding upon where it, it's mentioned all throughout scriptures, a lot of these, these contents and in, in the chapters that we're moving forward with. And uh, I think it's going to be a good conversation, Sean, and I think that uh, it's going to edify the body greatly. Um, yeah, for sure, buddy. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this one. Uh, this has got some, to me, the, the content that we're going to discuss in Enoch chapter 21 and 22 uh, for those of you just joining, thank you. Uh, if you've never, this is the first time you've seen the show, um, you know, be sure to click the subscribe button to here at the channel and the bell. That way you're notified when new episodes come out. This is going to be episode seven. We're digging into the book of Enoch. And here at Honor of Kings, our goal is to test the hidden books from the Bible. And that, that the term apocrypha means hidden, basically meaning removed. So we had a lot of these books in the, in the canon um, in years past, and they were taken out. And so our goal here on this show is to actually dig into those books we're going line by line, word by word, and we're actually looking at what it says and uh, try to figure out whether they should have been left in the canon or rightly taken out. And we currently are digging into the book of Enoch. And so far, I mean, we're, we're six six episodes in, and it seems like everything we're reading just just enhances the, the American canon of 66 and is venerated by the canon. It matches up theologically, matches up with continuity of ideas and themes. Um Personally, I don't think this one should have been taken out. I think that this was a travesty to remove this information from a believer who wants to know more about um, not just the kingdom of come or the day of the Lord, but who the enemy is and some of the components about the creation itself. Because we've, Ken, as you know, like chapter one, we get, you know, the day of the Lord. Chapter two, we got the creation. Chapter five, you get the first resurrection. Um, then we go into chapter seven through 10 and we get the, you know, the corruption of, rebellion of angels moving into um you know how it affected mankind the corrupting mankind all this is going to lead up to the flood of noah later and to me it seems like that if you are it's like if you take this book out you bring up so many more questions within the american canon of 66 as opposed to editing for clarity does that sound right yeah for sure man and um Enoch actually makes a, an interesting assertion in this book. Um, chapter 19, verse 3 says, And I, Enoch, I alone saw the likeness of the end of all things, nor did any man see it as I saw it. So as you just nicely said, Sean, the things that are in this book, even just the first 20 chapters that we've done over six episodes, um, it's just so in your face that you can't interpret it any other way. Now, when you go to the canon... And the scriptures that we have in our 66 book um, of scriptures that we have, these themes and concepts that you brought up, the day of the Lord, the resurrection, um, you know, the places of the dead, the heavens, the creation model, all that stuff, angels, who, who, who Satan is. Um, we have to really, really dig through a ton of different books in, in our canon to discern some of these things, which are totally there. But Enoch just flat out gives it to you. And you don't have to dig through tons of books to, to understand that. You know what I mean? 
It's yeah. Just, it's just given to you on a silver platter here is what I'm saying. He made an assertion that's just like, I alone saw all of these things and no other man has seen what I have seen. And he was showing a lot of stuff in this relatively brief book. You're exactly right. He, he touches on things that, you know, you do have to um, weed through, you know, some of the, how these, these topics are just sprinkled in to the books that are still in the American canon of 66, but without any explanation. And therefore you have to glean from context of application a, a true definition of these things, whereas Enoch simplifies it and just That's tells true. you outright, this is what this is, this is where this came from, this is why this happens, this is why we have this word and that word. It, it just, it, it's almost like a, an index and in, within itself, you know, yeah, for yeah. biblical related concepts and terms. Um, so yeah, to take this out of the collection of books that we call scripture, to me, seems very nefarious. It seems yeah. very, very much like a concerted effort to um, to keep people limited and guessing, and therefore strange teachings arise and strange doctrines arise because you don't know what what's what, and you're just trying to make the best of it. Yeah, absolutely, man. I agree with that, and uh, I believe that if people had access to Enoch or at least a belief in in it being an authentic and valid resource. Um, early on in their lives, we would see so much like different things in the world today, especially in the community of believers, lawlessness would be decreased, you know, understanding certain definitions that are in the scriptures that are in Enoch would be understood better, you know, cause they're so blatantly in your face. And I just, I agree, man. I, it seems like if you're going to remove any books, Enoch would be a, the first book you'd want to get rid of out of all the apocryphal extra biblical books that have been removed and have been in and out of canons throughout the last couple thousand years. That's right, man. Um, this is a, this is a fun book. And even though it's pretty controversial, um, in fact, that's what we started out talking about here at, at the show opening that this particular pat these, you know, chapter 21, 22, we're going to go over in this episode is going to uh, continue to be controversial <laughs> because we're going to deal with the subject of Sheol. And that is, um, man, we've, we've heard some controversy, haven't we, Ken? We have, yeah. There has been a lot of differing perspectives regarding Sheol and how it's defined, um, you know, what it means in the life of a believer and how we're to understand it um, according to what the scriptures describe it as, right? So... I think that by the end of this episode, we'll be pretty confident and we're hoping that you, the viewers, will have a little more confidence in what Sheol is and what it isn't. Um, and that it is something that is mentioned a lot throughout the scriptures, a lot. Um, all right, without further ado, Sean, uh, I'll just jump into chapter 21 here and get reading. And I proceeded to where things were chaotic. And I saw there something horrible. I saw neither a heaven above nor a firmly founded earth, but a place chaotic and horrible. And there I saw seven stars of the heaven bound together in it, like great mountains and burning with fire. Then I said, for what sin is, sorry, for what sin are they bound? And on what account have they been cast in hither? Then said Uriel, one of the holy angels who was with me and was chief over them and said, Enoch, why do you ask, and why are you eager for the truth? These are of the number of the stars of heaven, which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and are bound here till 10,000 years, the time entailed by their sins, 
are consummated. And from thence I went to another place, which was still more horrible than the former, and I saw a horrible thing, a great fire there which burnt and blazed, and the place was cleft as far as the abyss, being full of great descending columns of fire. Neither, it, neither its extent or magnitude could I see, nor could I conjecture. Then I said, how fearful is the place, and how terrible to look upon. Then Uriel answered me, one of the holy angels who was with me, and said unto me, Enoch, why have you such fear and affright? And I answered, because of this fearful place, and because of the spectacle of the pain. And he said unto me, this place is the prison of the angels, and here they will be imprisoned forever. The so, prison of the angels. Is that what Peter was referring to as Tartarus? Yes, that's exactly what he was referring to as Tartarus, Sean. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah in, um, in um, verse 7, where it starts to talk about um, him going on to a different place, the first six verses are essentially just describing what we had seen in previous chapters about the, um, the seven stars of heaven that were bound in, in a you know, horrible place and confined there because they transgressed uh, their order from the beginning of creation. And we had discussed them, I think it was the last episode, Sean, where, you know, when we look up at the night sky, there's stars missing. There's stars that transgressed their orders and were punished because of it. And, and that was uh, in last episode, chapter 18, right? Yeah. Was that what we, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's where, you know, so I know a lot of people put a lot of stock in reading the stars, um, some even in, in biblical communities, because they, you know, there's a, book that came out about the gospel being in the stars and and while that very may well be true apparently there are seven stars that are missing uh, out of all the stars in the heavens that we see when we look above you know in the firmament above um, apparently there's some that are actually missing would that change the, the the landscape dramatically i don't know i mean it's only seven of them but at the same time uh, you know, think about how much conjecture is made from three stars that make up Orion's belt, right? Yeah, no Have you ever seen how people do the constellations and they'll just take these stars and draw these elaborate pictures from them? Yeah. Like, how'd you get that? Like, that's... <laughs> it's you know, like that, connect the dots, right? Yeah, but the that they come up with all kinds of dots that I'm not seeing, you know? And so it's like, I, I don't know how they get those pictures to begin with, to be honest with you. It's not quite my forte of study. Um, so I just kind of take it with a grain of salt and... You know, because I don't really see the scriptures specifically detail in the Maseroth, you know, and the the idea of the constellations above that there is a great story to be told. Now, I, get, I know in Psalm 19, I think it's verse three or four, it talks about the, the heavens speak, you know, day by day. They, they shine forth and they speak there um, continually. But um, is that specifically meaning that it's the constellations speaking day by day? I, I don't know. I, yeah. you know, I've, I've heard people use that verse in support of that idea. Um, I just think me personally, you know, I, I'm going to be careful according to Deuteronomy 429, not to look to the, to the stars for too much information. Um, you know, the father may have put them up there and if, uh, clearly to be for signs and seasons, but, um, beyond that, beyond getting like detailed, intricate messages and prophecy out of them, I, I don't know about that. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, I, I think I am of the opinion of, this, of what you're saying because I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from, to be honest with you, man. Um, I know historically you've had um, people who were able to look to the stars for things, right? Like, I mean, we obviously have the Magi 
who who came to Jerusalem and um, they followed a star, right? So now if, if we're taking our heliocentric understanding of what stars are, that the star moved across the sky and it rested yeah. above the house, that's a little odd, right? Yeah. If we take what Enoch says, what's, what stars are, and as, as a luminary entity that, you know, has a circuit that it needs to perform in heaven and does so in the run of a day, um, and they can transgress their orders and move around. And, and they, you know, there's, an, there's an angel that polices them, whose name is Raguel. And there's Uriel, an angel who actually leads them in their procession. Um, stars become different, you know? So it's, it's not very bizarre to see a star moving across the sky for three, you know, wise men to go and discern and say, oh, look at that thing. And they follow it and it ends up being over top of, you know, the house of where Yeshua was born, right? That's right, yeah. And didn't the, the Magi say they saw the star in the east? Is that right? Yes, yeah. Well, but they traveled west to go find Yeshua, right? They That's traveled right. from the area of Babylon or Assyria, uh, Babylon area over to Jerusalem, which yeah. would be west in their their travels. So that that to me, it's always been a mystery of like, what did they see in the sky that I don't know? Yeah, and, and the same thing with Jasher, the book of Jasher, where it talks about um, when Abraham was born and yeah. Nimrod had some some people in his kingdom that were able to discern apparently the stars and, and tell of their signs and they they looked up one night and it just happened to be that Abraham was born and they were able to see that these stars kind of you know formed in such a way I don't know what it, what it means and what they saw man and how they were able to discern it we know that angels taught men how to discern signs of the heavens and whatnot maybe that that's kind of where it spills away from is is that understanding of understood but we also have Josephus mention that in uh, the Antiquity of the Jews book one he talks about how the descendants of Adam through the line of Seth particularly uh, knew how to read the stars. And so um, that's seemed to be like a skill or a trait he attributed to that lineage. And um, that's interesting claim, you know, and, and um, I don't know. There's, the, the, there's the gospel being in the stars and you know, it's there for us. I don't understand how you, how we could do that today. Seeing that. I've seen how someone broke it down and, you know, cause they're going off the book that was written on, in accordance with that idea. And I've seen how they broke it down. And like I said, it, you know, it, it's plausible. It's possible. It just seemed like, you know, some liberties were taken. Let me just put it like that. As far as, you know, how they're interpreting this to be, to mean that and that to mean this, you know, I just, yeah. so that's why I just took it with a grain of salt and I said, Oh, that's neat. But I'm going to stick with the words, the printed words um, that we have in scripture, because to me it's, um, it's something that we can teach to others without, you know, with, with understanding and without, um, hopefully without a lot of personal interpretation, yeah. <laughs> right? I uh, say that tongue in cheek since we have 40,000 nominations here in the United States. Um, but, you know, the, the whole goal of hopefully is to find sound doctrine. That's, that's how we study. We go through discipleship, washing our minds with the water of the word so that we can actually, you know, find sound doctrine and know it. It's not impossible to know sound doctrine. You know, and this is that this to me is one of the great, um, uh, I don't know, one of the great deceptions of our modern age is for people that come around and think, oh, we can't know it all. Well, no one's saying you're going to know every piece of knowledge in all of existence, but I, we can know the information that the father told us for us to know. Yes, I mean, like, I, I don't, I, I hate to sound, you know, like I'm trying to make a joke, but like, it's that, it's that silly of an argument 
that we hear where people are like, oh, you can't know everything. And I'm like, wait a minute. We're talking about scripture. We're not talking about everything. And in the book that the father gave through his prophets for us to know, we can know it. He did not make it impossible for us to know. We just have to believe the words that are put down for us to understand and read and study. It's not it's not impossible. And Amen. so I, I, I think that, you know, and this is a great example of what we're reading here in this chapter in, in chapter 21, where we have stars that have transgressed their commandment and they're they've been dealt with. I'm guessing Raguel swooped them up or, or addressed them and, and dealt with them since they were not following their preordained orders. And then we also have these angels who, you know, combine themselves with women, as we've read in multiple chapters previous, and they're also put to a place of imprisonment yeah. for their crimes and to await the day of judgment when they're thrown in the lake of fire. And I think that um, that know, lines up with chapter ten for our viewers, um, where Yahweh is basically telling uh, Michael and Gabriel, Uriel, those angels, that this is what I want you to do to these watchers that have laid with women this is what you're going to do to azazel at his appointed time and I, yeah that's chapter 10 i believe sean right you're right yeah chapter 10 that's where we get their punishment specifically with the angels that lane with women and how they're going to be locked up until you know the day of their torment which and that's in that case that you know the idea of torment is talking about the day they're brought out of their imprisonment and they're put into their judge before yeshua and they're put into the lake of fire uh, to be basically extinguished from existence. And so that's what's interesting is we've got Enoch is being shown a couple different places here. And I, and I as you have already read the entire chapter, I just want to make note of, of verse seven, where he actually travels from one place to another. And the, the place he goes to see where the angels who laid with women and where they're imprisoned, he says that that place was more horrible than the, the first place he saw. And so in the first place he saw is, you know, in verse one, verse two, it says there's neither a heaven above nor a firmly founded earth, but a place chaotic and horrible. And, and Ken, you know, if you, if you bear with me, I may say this almost in every episode, just to remind people when we see the word heaven, that word is defined for us in Genesis one, verse six to eight as the word for firmament. It was a firmament was the structure um, that was made by the father. And then he gave that structure a name and called it a heaven, called it the heaven or a heaven. And there's multiple types of heavens and multiple layers of heavens. Um, and so it's actually, that's why we see in loose, tra loose translations. And then like we talked about in the last episode, there's actually the term firmament of the heaven used as well, speaking in a specific context. But many times when we see like in verse two, it says, I saw neither a heaven above nor a firmly founded earth, but a place chaotic and horrible. Well, what he's saying there is whatever this place is, it doesn't have the same structure of reality that we have because we live under a heaven, under a firmament above, and then we live on ground, a firmly founded earth, right? Whose foundations uh, will never be shaken, right? right? So we live on an, a still immovable piece of earth with a a heaven, a, a firmament above us. Wherever this place is that Enoch is seen um, in the beginning of this chapter, it doesn't have those things. Yeah. So it that's almost sounds to me, Sean, like it, it may be the outer darkness that's referenced elsewhere. What do you think? It's very possible, man. Uh, I, Because, you know, in the last few chapters, it seems like we were above when we're seeing the seas and the waters and lands, the mountains above the firmament and uh, where the father exists. But this place, wherever he went to, because uh, verse one, he says, I proceeded to where things were chaotic. And it's very possible that they're just literally taken out of the entire creation model. Yeah. Another version says that he 
was taken to a place where nothing was completed. It's a completely barren, desolate. There's really nothing there. That's very so possible. It sounds like if that place were to exist, it would be outside of the created model that Yahweh has made. In my opinion, and, it might be. Yeah, and, and in practicality, when we think about stuff like this, because remember, Enoch goes off the biblical creation model. Okay, Enoch is not in a heliocentric model. The whole book, the, the context of the entire book is set. All the, the interaction, the characters, the judgments, everything going on is set within the framework of a biblical creation model. So for him to take stars, Ken, that would be sitting in the waters of the firmament above, and then suddenly you can't put them there. Where are you going to put them? They're not, they're not created nor intended to exist in the in where we live underneath the firmament on the ground. They, they're, you know, whatever they are, whatever they're made of, um, that was not their original place to exist. So is it possible that to be taken to a place chaotic and horrible, that's kind of outside of an unfinished place, if you know, as you alluded to, that could possibly be outside the overall big firmament, you know, and just in the, the waters that are incomplete that we see in Genesis 1-1 or 1-2 um, before the actual firmament was made that may be the only place that they can exist yeah. for punishment. Possibly, you know, yeah. Otherwise they have to be just completely eradicated from existence. Um, and so, they will be, we're told they will be um, elsewhere that on the day of the Lord yeah. judgment comes when these angels that are in Tartarus or in this other place that we just talked about in chapter 21, um, you know, when they get punished on the, on the great day of judgment, so will these stars, right? So they're going to have their, an ultimate punishment as well. Right. Yeah, that's right. It that is the you know what's called the great white throne judgment because it's uh, everything is judged. You know everything that had been waiting to be judged that wasn't because um, the righteous are judged at the first resurrection, and that's when you know uh, Revelation chapter eleven. That could be for a whole another uh, episode or video, but um, and I actually break that down on this channel in a in a different video, like a morning cup of context, uh, where I go over the two different types of judge judgments that happen at the first and second resurrections. But um, it's I think it's a video titled "Who's Judged First? something like that. But the point is, we're gonna. The reason why I mentioned that Ken is because not only are we seeing two categories of things here that are being locked away into a different place to await the Great White Throne Judgment, which is the second judgment. We're also going to read about that in the following chapter, in chapter 22. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. And I, I said we just get to it, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So in chapter everybody. 22, let's look at uh, verse 1. It says, And then I went to another place, and he showed me in the west another great and high mountain of hard rock. And there was in it four hollow places, deep and wide, and it's very smooth. How smooth are the hollow places, and deep and dark to look at. Then Raphael answered one of the holy angels who was with me and said unto me, These hollow places have been created for this very purpose, that the spirits of the souls of the dead should, should assemble therein, yea, that all the souls of the children of men should assemble here. And these places have been made to receive them till the day of their judgment, until their appointed period, till the appointed period, till the great judgment comes upon them. I saw the spirits of the children of men who were dead, and their voice went forth to heaven and made suit. And then I asked Raphael, the angel who was with me, and I said unto him, There's this spirit, who is it, whose voice goes forth and make a suit? And he answered me, saying, This is the spirit which went forth from Abel, whom his brother Cain slew. And he makes his suit against him till his seed is destroyed from the face of the earth, 
and his seed is annihilated from amongst the seed of men. Then I asked regarding it and regarding all the hollow places, why is one separated from the other? And he answered me, and he said unto me, These three have been made that the spirits of the dead might be separated. And such a division has been made for the spirits of the righteous, in which there there are as the bright spring of water. And such has been made for sinners when they die and are buried in the earth, and judgment has not been executed on them in their lifetime. Here their spirits shall be set apart in this great pain till the great day of judgment and punishment and torment of those who curse forever and retribution for their spirits. There he shall bind them forever. And such a division has been made for the spirits of those who make their suit, who make disclosures concerning their destruction, when they were slain in the days of the sinners. Such has been made for the spirits of men who were not righteous, but sinners, who were complete in transgression. And of the transgressors, they shall be companions. But their spirits shall not be slain in the day of judgment, nor shall they be raised from thence. Then I blessed the Lord of glory and said, Blessed be my Lord, the Lord of righteousness, who ruleth forever. Okay, Ken, we got some fun stuff to break down in this one. We sure do, Sean. And before we pretty much go verse for verse on this and refer to other texts, um, one little interesting thing that I wanted to point out um, is that the angel Raphael, who brought Enoch to Sheol here, we're told in chapter 20 that Raphael is one of the holy angels who watches over the spirits of men. And if you pay close attention, when... Enoch is shown different compartments and different, you know, places where, where he ends up going. Um, the angel that shows him is always usually in reference to what they watch over. So Uriel, we are told in the previous chapter that he went to essentially Tartarus, right? And when we go to chapter 20, it says Uriel, one of the holy angels who is over the world and over Tartarus. So he's being shown all these different places according to what angel is watching over. You know what I mean? So Raphael seems to be over the spirits of men, according to uh, chapter 20 here. And yeah, so we're he gets that. the right to take Enoch to that place because he's the one who watches over it and he can answer That's the right. questions that Enoch may have, right? Yeah, it's, it's take a, take Enoch to work day and we've got Raphael at his job, taking Enoch to his job and showing him around, you know? Right. And that's just like Uriel um, took him around different places that he was responsible for. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is fascinating that, you know, it's just the text, you know, kind of validating itself. The text is just staying consistent within what it's already claimed. That's right. So, but verse one talks about going to another place. So he's moved from these places in chapter 21 that were chaotic and, you know, uh, horrible. And so he, he went to another place where there's a great and high mountain of hard rock. And there was in it inside what seems to be, and Ken, in verse two, it seems to say that inside the mountain with hollow places, deep, wide, and very smooth. Yes. Four of them. Yeah. Four of them. Yeah. So it's okay. So everything that we're about to read is taking place inside of a mountain. That's what it seems like, Sean. Yep. That's pretty wild. You know, it reminds me of the, uh, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings, you know, like, a, <laughs> yeah, man, where Gandalf yeah. is falling through, fighting that demon and he's falling through the mountain yeah. and, uh, going to middle earth or whatever. Um, yeah, is it the, was it the Mines of Moria? Is that what it is? Yeah, he was <laughs> trying to get out of the Mines of Moria. And uh, Gandalf stays back to, to fight that demon. And yeah. <laughs> and he goes deeper, right? Toward the yes. demon. Yeah, yeah, he goes deep down into the into the mountain itself. Right. Um, well, 
I, I well, I've always been, you know, this is kind of a maybe a point of I'm not great concern, but the the fact that he keeps calling it smooth. You know, he it, it, it seems to be, I don't know, it's just weird how he says they're smooth, deep, dark, and hollow places. And I, I don't know if that's has anything to do. I, I don't know why it would make any difference to where it's smooth. And just maybe he's just saying that, like, it just saying that it's smooth means that it's uh, it's been crafted, if you will, with intention. You know, like it's not just jagged mountains that are shooting up, you know, and, and growing within the mountain. But these are actually been carved out and smoothed out places with intention. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I think you'd be on me something there because um, I know in Jubilees it talks about that on day one, all the abysses within the earth were created. And so, I mean, that's true. This is, Sheol is also a reference to the pit and the abyss. And, and so, um yeah, yeah, I believe obviously Yahweh created this place with intention, right? And he yeah, it, it looks the way it is and it's described the way it's described intentionally. Yeah, so, usually when you know you dig a pit, um, it's dug with intention. Um, it's not just a pit that just was from natural formation, but of course we have the the parable of the vineyard owner and where he he uh, planted a garden and dug a pit, right, for the wine press or or a vat, I should say, underneath, which is like a small pit. And um, and that was where those um you know in the in the analogy when you when you do a, a wine press you the vat or the pit will collect the actual grape juice that you would then turn into wine that's been pressed out but in this case it's uh, it's collecting the the spirits that have been pressed out of the the grapes of our body and yeah. so uh <laughs> um which to me reminds me of all those allusions to how the blood cries out from the ground how you know the, the earth is defiled with the blood of sinners, that kind of thing, and how it has to be restored and renewed. And that's why eventually Sheol itself is brought before the Father and eradicated this whole concept that we're about to read about. Yeah. So, and, so speaking of parables, Sean, um, isn't there another parable that might correlate with this entire chapter 22 here that we have in the Gospels? Yeah, it's uh, the famous parable that Jesus talks about in Luke 16, where he talks about the, the rich man who... Uh, basically sees and interacts well doesn't interact with but he sees lazarus um or a guy named lazarus i don't know if it's the same lazarus that we see in other parts like in john 11 and other things that he rose from the dead but it doesn't really distinguish but in the parable there's a rich man who does not have a name and then we get a poor man who's named lazarus and yeah. they're both in a setting that to me ken the setting that they're put in matches this description of sheol just about perfectly i agree man i'm just going to quickly read um Luke 16, 19 to uh, 30 real quick there, buddy, just for our audience's oh, yeah. sake. Um, okay. So now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and looking at sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or which is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Sheol, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water. Which I think we just talked about a pool of water, didn't we, Sean? I believe so. Yeah. Um, a bright spring, but yeah. Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house where I have five brothers. And it just goes on and on. And he says, essentially, if you're not going to believe this, then, um, you know, you have Moses and the prophets. And, and what I'm getting at here, Sean, this just sounds like what we're reading here in Enoch 22. You have a chasm fixed between mm-hmm. the two. You have a pool of water or spring of water of some sort. Um, and just the yeah, concept first- of being split in two, right? You have right. someone who is righteous, like Lazarus in this parable, and you have someone who is unrighteous, like the rich man. That's right. And we have in verse eight of Enoch 22, eight is where it says, you know, Enoch is asking, why is one separated from the other? And verse nine, you know, Raphael answers him and he says that they've been made that the spirits of the dead might be separated. Such a division has been made for the spirits of the righteous in which there are as the bright spring of water. So there we get the water mention. Okay. As as far as that. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's also another mention in the apocalypse of Baruch about something like this too, right? Yes, I believe there is. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of, I just want to make a quick uh, aside for what you just read in Luke 16 and in verse, um, verse 28 and uh, um, no, 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 it's in verse 24. And when it talks about how he asks that he may dip his finger in a tip of the water so that he can, you know, he's in agony from this flame, may touch it to his tongue. Now, because this is a parable and, you know, many people think that they just want to brush aside all of this imagery and claim it's just a parable and none of it's real. Yet we're seeing the same type of imagery, imagery detailed to us in Enoch 22. But within the within the setting of this imagery and what we're about to break down in Enoch 22, I just want to go ahead and give a quick quick preface there is no burning in flames okay so this idea that we're looking at in luke 16 24 if you actually break down if you look at the greek and what he says in this passage where he says i'm in agony and some of the, some translations will say i'm in torment of this flame or i'm suffering in this fire and that's and that's you know just depends on your translation but if you look um that particular word is uh odune and I don't know if I'm saying that right um, and pronouncing that in the Greek, right. But, um, and there's a, the definition does mean, you know, torment and pain, but if you look down um, and it says it's very painful sorrow. And this is, you know, when you break into the further meanings, it means deep personal anguish expressed by great mourning. And so, uh, and it, and it continually refers to sorrow and pain. And, and that's where we get this idea of agony, like from the NAS exhaustive concordance, it, it doesn't mention a physical pain, um, but as much as it does, it says mental acute, physical or mental pain. But the further explanation of that word and how it's used in this passage is talking about a deep personal anguish or sorrow. Okay, so the reason I say that is because some people would like to say that, you know, there's a um, that Jesus is expressing a, a Catholic version of hell which means a place of literal people are on fire, you know, and that is not what scripture teaches us at all. And that's not what even what Enoch is expressing here in chapter 22. So this guy is asking for a drip of the water and we see what this water is. And that's how Jesus can even mention these things, Ken, 
So if he's telling a parable to somebody and their audience doesn't know have a clue what he's saying, you know, that's why he's expressing them and he can use all these terms and just keep going without even having to explain himself. Yeah. Because they know, in my opinion, those people back in those days knew Enoch. We we see, as we've already talked about in previous episodes, how Jesus quoted from Enoch in multiple places, right? And he's teaching themes that are only found in Enoch. And there's no question or rebuttal to him after he teaches yeah. these things and because they audience, know where he's pulling this information. Yeah, his audience, Sean, that he's speaking to in Luke 16 would be the Pharisees, right? And they believed in the resurrection. So That's they, right. they yeah. understood the concept that, you know, there's going to be a coming a day where the souls of men will come out of Sheol and take on the resurrection. So right. this isn't, this concept isn't completely unknown to them. And, you know, as we're talking about parables, I did a, I did um, a study on all the parables from Matthew to John that Yeshua uses. Right. And I made notes about all the parables and basically it all really boils down to, um, Yeshua's usage of words and concepts are things that are real, right? You have the store of the seeds. You have leaven hidden in three measures. You have hidden treasures. You have kings and householders and laborers and fig trees and ten virgins and, and kingdoms and just all these things that we know exist, right? Right. And he used yeah. those things that we know exist to make his point, which was the point of a parable, Right. So right. you're saying that he didn't just pull out of thin air an imaginary place that doesn't exist in order to, to put these characters in this parable. That's what I'm trying to imply. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And nor was he using Greek mythology um, to drive home a truth, a point. <laughs> right. That would be with our Messiah's character whatsoever. Yeah, to me, I've heard that that complaint as well. That or that I don't know. That excuse is is maybe a better way to put it. The people have tried to say that that this idea of Sheol is just Greek mythology and it's not anything in the scriptures. And I laugh because I'm like, then that means that your Messiah, the great teacher, just used a horrible teaching method. <laughs> and he and he's you're claiming he's pulling from pagan sources and uh, as a description for the setting of his parable, but yet you want to say this, the parable setting is not real, but the moral lesson is real. And I'm like, well, why would in the world would the greatest teacher ever who spoke nothing but truth, give us an untrue setting to a parable in which these things take place. And if you look closely, Ken, in that parable, the interaction within the parable is specific to the setting. So it's not like the setting is inconsequential. Yeah. The fact that the, the rich man couldn't get to Lazarus, and then he and he conceded that he couldn't get over there, so therefore he just asked for a drop of water, right? Which I think personally, if we're if we're extrapolating meaning from that parable, that he's asking for salvation basically, because that's what the bright springs of water represent, and uh, we get that in other places. But um, but this idea that that's why the righteous are on that side, where it's a pleasant place, and that there is a bright spring of water because it represents the salvation leading up to the resurrection, and that's what this guy who is in emotional deep anguish and personal torment from the flame and the flame ken is what i would suggest is going to be the second judgment the second resurrection judgment where you know all of shul is pulled up before the uh, before yeshua they're judged they're thrown into the lake of fire and that's what i think what we get in, uh, expressed to us in verses 11 through 14. yeah no totally man and um, 22 11 through 14. 
So okay. it's. I want to just jump over real quick, if I can, Sean, to Second Baruch. We mentioned it earlier. Um, there's a couple chapters here that I think will add a little bit to the context surrounding the resurrection and Sheol, and you know, this idea that there's two sides within this compartment, and souls on each side, dependent on how they lived their lives before they died and what they experience there and what they're going to experience on the day of the Lord. I just want to read a couple of things if you don't mind. Okay, Sean. So I'm basically just going to read out a second Baruch here, um, starting with chapter 49. Um, cool, man. Yeah. yeah. Go yeah. for it. Okay. So it says, nevertheless, I will again ask from you. Oh my God. Yeah. I will ask mercy from him who made all things. In what shape will those live who live in your day? Or how will the splendor of those who are after that time continue? Will they then resume this form of the present and put on these entrembling members which are now involved in evils and in which evils are con consummated? Or will you peradventure change these things which have been in the world as also the world? So basically what Baruch is asking Yahweh here, Sean, is what are we going to look like on your day, the day of the Lord when we're resurrected? Are we going to have these same bodies and, and, you know, tell me essentially, what are we going to look like here? How's it, how's it going to work? And Yahweh answers in chapter 15 says, and he answered and said unto me, hear Baruch this word and write in the remembrance of your heart, all that you shall learn for the earth shall then assuredly restore the dead, which it now receives in order to preserve them. It shall make no change in their form, but as it has received, so shall it restore them. And as I delivered them unto it, so also shall it raise them. For then it shall be necessary to show to the living that the dead have come to life again, and that those who had departed have returned again. And it shall come to pass when they have sev severally recognized those whom they now know, then judgment shall grow strong, and those things which before were spoken of shall come. And then in chapter 51, it says, And it shall come to pass when that appointed day has gone by, that then shall the aspect of those who are condemned be afterwards changed and the glory of those who are justified for the aspect of those who now act wickedly shall become worse than it is as they shall suffer torment. Also, as for the glory of those who have now been made righteous in my Torah, who have had understanding in their life and who have planted in their heart, the root of wisdom, then their splendor shall be glorified and changes and the form of their face shall be turned into the light of their beauty. And they, may be able to acquire and receive the world which does not die, which is then promised to them. And then it goes on to describe how we're going to look like angels. We're going to be like the stars in heaven and be able to fly around, which is amazing. But I guess what I'm getting at here is, Sean, the souls that are righteous, that are in covenant and obeying Yahweh's instructions, they're going to be given a body that's glorified. They're going to present themselves on the day of the Lord to those who are alive during that time. And those who are alive on the earth are going to see them in their glorified bodies. As well, those who didn't get that glorified body on the day of the Lord, who are on the unpleasant side of Sheol, are going to waste away in torment or anguish even more. So that's fascinating. And my personal... Yeah, I think what you're doing is drawing a great uh, context to the use of the word torment, like we were just trying to discuss, that it doesn't mean literal torture. I think that's where our modern vernacular kind of... Um, interchanges those two ideas and that's maybe inaccurate to do that. So this idea exactly. of torment is talking about personal deep anguish or emotional um, being upset emotionally about it. Right. Yeah, they're they're going to see, they're going to see people resurrect. That's right. And that's they're right. going to think, Oh my gosh, I have to stay here longer and I'm not going to get right. to resurrect. 
Like, right. That would, yeah. And that's exactly what we read here in the book of Enoch, chapter 22, where it says, um, um, here, uh, let me read in verse 13, such has been made for the spirits of men who are not righteous, but sinners who are complete in transgression and of the transgressors shall they be companions, but their spirits shall not be slain in the day of judgment, nor shall they be raised from here. And that's what it's talking about, right? So right. it's talking about on the day of judgment, the righteous are raised, but those who were complete in transgression, the unrighteous, they get, they stay there and they're waiting what we read in revelation 20, which is the great white throne judgment when all the dead is brought before Yeshua and judged and thrown into the lake of fire. So this is, and that's the, the lake of fire is the torment of the flame is the emotional anguish of the flame to come because they know, as you saw there, as you read in wonderfully in Baruch, they saw the righteous resurrect and they weren't a part of that group. And so that's they right. have more deep emotional anguish because they know the only thing left for them is the lake of fire to come. So, yeah, that's, you know, it's a the shield is being described as a receptacle <clears throat> for the dis, departed spirits. And that's the actual literal definition we see. I'm going to put that up here on the screen as well. Just from the, you know, the lexicons, the, the, uh, the actual concordances. Um, this is a well-established concept amongst people defining words in the Bible um, is that, as you see, it's a, you know, a departed place for the spirits of the dead. Um, yeah. And it's just an abode of the undead of those. Um, the underworld is what it's generically called, but there's some strange connotation with that. So that's why I just like to use Strong's exhaustive concordance. Someone describing it um, that Sheol is considered is called Hades. And we see that in Revelation 20 right? That death and Hades are brought before Yeshua and he judges them. But it's also called the, the world of the dead or a subterranean retreat, including its accessories and inmates. And then we see that there's other, you know, references used for, you know, generically is called hell. It's called the pit. And it's also used for as the grave in many cases. So the idea is that it's a compartment, just like Enoch explains, and without, you know, if you were, if you were to read the Amer the modern American canon of 66 and you see a word Sheol being used and you didn't look up the concordance definition of it, or you've never read Enoch, you may think it's just the grave. Is that right, Ken? That's right. Yeah. And depending on what translation you pull from, I mean, a lot of the, the ones that I like to use, use the, the feminine noun that it is which is, you know, Sheol, the usage of the actual name of the place instead of one of its aspects, right? One of its characteristics, which is a grave, right? Because um, you could read, you know, you could read that it, it's mentioned as a grave for sure. And then you could just glib over that and just assume, well, it must just be referring to like, you know, the grave as in like metaphorically or figuratively speaking about the grave that we go into when, you know, when we die and our, our corpse is laid into, you know, six, six feet under the earth, that's the grave. But that's not at all what, what's being referred to, and especially Enoch chapter 22 and, and elsewhere. Yeah, so just as a quick example, um, let's look at Genesis 44. When you have um, Jacob is uh, is talking with his sons who had come back from, from visiting Joseph in Egypt. And Joseph, remember, he's holding Simeon as collateral. And he sends back Judah and his other brothers to Jacob, his father, to try to bring Jacob down to Egypt to see Joseph. And he wants to make this kind of a, a mischievous surprise. And so um, because remember, he's also he's holding Simeon and also Benjamin. Is that right? That's right. Um, yeah. And so in verse 31, 
uh, we've got Jacob actually talking about how, you know, if anything happens to Benjamin, he's going to be super sorrowful and he'll go down to Sheol in sorrow. So if you see like verse 29, it says, if you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to, she to Sheol in sorrow. So Ken, in that verse right there, it, it looks like Jacob is, is just speaking, you know, poetically is what I've heard people try to say. He's just speaking poetically about going to his grave, you know? Yeah. And what I would say is there's a deeper context here throughout all of scripture, because, you know, if you're, you're just going to your grave yet the concordance definition of Sheol in the, that's the same word Sheol that we have all over the place in the modern American can of 66. We then see that referenced in revelation 20. This is that Sheol or Hades, right? It's the Greek word for Sheol is brought before Yeshua. So if it's just dirt in the grave, How's he going to do that? What's the point of bringing dirt before him? If it's just, if Sheol is just a word for grave, which is a, a term just for taking a dirt nap, right? Yeah. There's no point in bringing the dirt. I mean, that just, that makes no sense, right? So that's why we have a great uh, definition for Sheol as an actual receptacle of the dead. And so um, that, I think that's, um, there's a, a great verse by David. Um, I think it's in Psalm 49, where he talks about his soul is ransomed from Sheol. Do you remember that one in oh, Psalm 49, 15? So many chapters, man. Psalms is just loaded with David uh, and Sheol. Yeah, it's in Psalm 49, uh, 15. It says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And then we see um, also in Hosea 13, 14, it talks about, um, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. And so, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's even in uh, Psalm 18, Sean, um, if I can just read that really quick, there are yeah. several verses of it. Um, in my opinion, this is from David's um, perspective of being in Sheol, waiting for the day of the Lord to happen so that he can be, as you just said, ransomed out of it and, and resurrected. So chapter 18, verse 4 says, the cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death comforted me, or sorry, confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. So before I move on to the, a couple other verses there, Sean, um, verses four to six that I just read there are practically verbatim to what Jonah experiences um, in the book of Jonah. I don't think many people realize that Jonah <laughs> died. He, yeah. he went to Sheol for three days and Yahweh miraculously. Yeah, you're, you're right, brother. Let's just really, let's just go ahead and just push over that, that one right now. And yeah. uh, let's yeah. start that controversy right now. You and I have done a lot of study on, on Jonah and we both come to the conclusion that, um, the whale actually swallowed the dead body of Jonah at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and then spitting back up. And the resurrection, right, is That's, the interesting part of that story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just jump over there real quick there, brother. Um, okay. Yeah, Jonah, this is something that we, we find a lot of contention from because people want to, they don't know how, they don't, because they don't understand Sheol, in my opinion. They don't know what they're reading when they look at the story of Jonah. Yeah. And therefore, they can't make sense of why Yeshua refers to Jonah um, yeah. when he teaches. And so it's I'll let you go ahead. And, exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll let you go ahead and read and, and 
take it. Yeah, from sure. There. Yeah. Uh, Jonah is, is one of my favorite books, man. I mean, it's hard to put a favorite on any of the books. I love all the scriptures really, but this one is just so short and so in your face. And it's so, and it's something that has been overlooked for so long, in my opinion. Um, so it was with further ado, I'll just read it real quick. So basically we have Jonah, he's on the ship, he's fleeing Yahweh and he was sent, told to go to Nineveh. He's fleeing Yahweh. He's on a ship, and there's a great tempest happening, and and the mariners that are on the ship with him are basically asking, "What the heck would we have to do to stop this tempest?" And Jonah basically describes saying, "I'm the one who brought this tempest on us. You gotta throw me overboard." They don't want to do it, but reluctantly they end up doing it. They throw him overboard at the end of chapter one, and the sea stops from its raging. And then it says in uh, verse 17, and Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So most people think, oh, there you go. He was alive, miraculously, just in the fish for three days and three nights. But when we right. go into chapter two, we have an interesting um, revelation here. So it says, then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying. So he's, in my opinion, Sean, and I could be wrong, but... I believe that there's three days of a gap between verse 17 of chapter one, when he's in the fish for three days, three nights, and essentially he's resurrected back into the fish and he starts this prayer that we get in chapter two. So if I can read it here, then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me all your waves and your billows passed over me then i said i'm driven away from your sight yet i shall again look upon your holy temple so he knew that he was going to resurrect that verse right there is saying i'm going to be able to look on your holy temple once again yeah verse five then the waters closed in over me to take my life the deep surrounded me weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains in my opinion he's describing his descent down as you said into the mediterranean sea um he's drowning and then verse six um I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my Elohim. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your temple. And then it says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope for steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. So he's, he made, in my opinion, he was in Sheol. And he was supplicating and praying to the Father. And his prayer came before him, just like we know that Abel's right. praying, right? As yeah. Enoch chapter 22 is referring to, Enoch's asking the angel, whose voice is this that I'm hearing? He's, right. This is Abel. This is the first guy who came here, essentially. He's the first one to take residence in this Sheol because his brother had killed him. And he's praying, he's making supplications before the Father, right? And, and I don't, I'm not going to interrupt you too long. I, I don't, I don't want to disrupt your momentum. I just want to add real quick that this is not an out of this concept that you're referring to is not out of order. Like we see something else like this already. Verse six here in Enoch 22, six, where it talks about these, this spirit of Abel that's making suit. We see that in Revelation chapter six, verses seven through 11 with the souls under the altar. And that, you know, that's talking about the souls that are in Sheol waiting for the resurrection. And they're asking, when are you going to avenge our blood? So this yeah. is, you know, this idea of them consciously asking and praying to the father um, at this from Sheol is not a strange concept. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the souls that are righteous are able to do. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're waiting. They're saying, Father, when are you going to, you know, avenge us? When, when are you going to give us what you've promised? We want that day to come. And so Jonah took part in that when he went to Sheol. He, he, his prayer went before the Father and he said, I know I'm going to see you again. I know I'm going to resurrect out of here. So he's displaying the fact that he knows the resurrection is going to take place. But Yahweh um, essentially uses this prophet who was reluctant to go do his duty to go to Nineveh to preach repentance to them and says, you're going to, you're going to essentially, you're going to finish what I I'd want you to do. So he resurrects him back into his body, which is not an uncommon thing. Elijah was able to resurrect people. Obviously Yeshua was able to resurrect people back into their mortal bodies, not, not their resurrection of mortal bodies, but their flesh and blood bodies. And because he was being preserved in the belly of the great creature, sea creature, um, he had, he had resurrected back into his body and the great sea creature spat a buck out onto dry land. And so he's able to fulfill his, um, his duty that Yahweh wanted him to go do at Nineveh. So I guess what we're saying here, Sean, is often we're taught that Jonah is just in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights alive, miraculously, just somehow breathing not being suffocated or, or <laughs> whatever goes on in the belly of a whale, he's yeah. able to just live there which is right. fine god well, does miracles that's, and that's fine but it, it does miracles but i don't think that's what this that chapter story is saying because i think that in order for yeshua's words to be justified that the only sign that generation of yeshua would receive was the sign of jonah well what would be the sign of jonah ken i mean yeah, what is the that yeshua as jonah did was in the belly of sheol for three days and three nights his soul went to sheol his body was in a grave Right. Well, is is that okay? What I'm trying to say though, he is resurrected. That, that's the point, right? He yeah, the, the sign. The sign is something people can see, right? They can't see his his sheol, his soul down in sheol. So I would say that the sign, personally, would be the resurrection. That they saw that resurrection, just like the people of Jesus's day saw him resurrect. They saw him walk around afterwards. They saw him die. They saw him afterwards alive again and well. And that's where I think that the sign of Jonah is the resurrection. There's no other comparison with Jonah and Yeshua. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and that, would, that people can visibly see with their eyes is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Or to be a sign for the definition of a sign. And that's where, you know, I like you, I agree that he's dead in the belly of the fish for three days. He's in Sheol. His prayer is heard to the point where he's resurrected. His time was not finished. Um, and he's spit back out on the beach side, if you will, dry land. And he's resurrected. Someone sees this, and therefore he has. It gives credence to his message to Nineveh because they take him seriously and they actually repent. Yeah. So to it me, this is fascinating, Ken, um, because how in the world <laughs> how are you going to repent? I mean, okay, here's a here's a bigger theological question that we can go into in a different video. But Nineveh was not a part of Israel. So yeah, no, definition of repentance is to is to, to stop doing wickedness and do the works of the law and do the righteous acts of God as defined by the Torah. Yeah. So if he's coming to Nineveh to preach repentance and they actually did it, what does that tell us about Nineveh? Yeah, well, Sean, I, I don't know if we're going on the same um, route here, but my understanding based off of the book of Tobit is that there were Israelites in Nineveh because they yeah. were... There's exactly. the Syrian captivity, right? So exactly. But it says even the king repented. Yeah. 
So what we're seeing though is an infiltration because that's between the first and second dispersions between the, you know, the Northern kingdom was dispersed by Assyria. Then later on Judah was dispersed by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so within that time period is where we're placing Jonah basically. And yeah. so we have scattered Israelites who are in Assyria whom would understand the message that he, that he's bringing, but apparently the message gets to the King, right? That's and right. So we're, we're not assuming that the King of Assyria was, was Hebrew. Are we? I don't think so. No. So this is what I'm getting at is that God's using an amazing moment here to spread his truth and salvation, right? To get people to stop doing wickedness and go to and start doing, you know, and so here we just had the Syrians previously invaded uh, the Northern kingdoms and then scatter them and bring them in captivity. Some of them back to Assyria yet. They're now being affected by the God of Israel to the point of repentance. And the, the whole, the reason why I'm saying and elaborate on this, Ken, is because none of this makes any sense if Sheol's not a real place. So this yeah. whole story of Jonah and the, 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 the power of God bringing righteousness to an Assyrian king, just like we see Daniel affect Nebuchadnezzar later, but the power of Jonah's message and the implications of where he goes and what happens when he goes there with this message only has weight. If Sheol's a real place and he can really cry out from there and he can really be resurrected, right? So this is, this is why I'm trying to drive this home for folks because they want to just dismiss this as, you know, as metaphor and it doesn't have any meaning. And, and I'm like, guys, the implications of all this is the father using the context of Sheol within the story of Jonah so that his message can actually resonate to the point of repentance of a pagan king. Like that's a big deal. And I, I just don't, I, I just never hear people talk about it and because no one understands Sheol. And I just, yeah, I get no, that. I agree. I agree, man. And you're right. Like Daniel, um, you know, when he was under Babylonian authority and Persian authority, those kings, both those kings recognized Yahweh's laws were amazing. And they said, this is going to be the edict of our kingdom, right? We're going to, yeah, we're going to walk after this God of the Hebrews and do things this way. So you're right about about it um, being interesting about the king of Nineveh having to repent, right? And and he ends up doing that. Yeah, which yeah. is wild because the definition of repentance means he goes to keeps the laws of God. Yeah. So um, anyway, it's powerful, powerful story to bring validity to the idea that Sheol is an actual place of the receptacle of the departed spirits and that those departed spirits have some level of consciousness is the idea. Yeah, absolutely. To the point where their little prayers are going forth, right? So they're still talking and they're still talking to God. And you know what it really reminds me of, though? If I'm, I'm going to flip to this first real quick, Ken, um, is in uh, Psalm 139. And this is, um, I think it's verses seven and eight. And this is, um, to me, it's just a lot of people will use the excuse because they, they either have, haven't studied Shul and what Enoch 22 describes or they try to just claim it's just the grave itself and it's not an actual place. And so they try to explain away and say, well, oh, well, you know, if, if you're out of the body, your spirit's already back to God. So how can it be going somewhere else? Yeah. Well, let's look at what the psalmist says about that. And he says in verse uh, seven, he says, Psalm 139, seven, where can I go from your spirit? Well, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So he's basically, you know, 
people think, well, oh, if you die, you're out of the body, you're going to, your, your spirit goes to God. And that's where people think that we go to heaven when we die. Yeah. Or we go, we go up to where the father's realm is. Right. And that's where I would say, no, no, there's a timing involved. The only time we go up is into the new Jerusalem on the day of the Lord at our resurrection. And even then we come right back down as the city descends. And so this idea of Sheol has always been there as the context of where departed spirits go upon our death. And this idea, even the psalmist here in 139 talks about, he's, he's given the, you know, the, the poetic descriptions of extremities. If I go to the heavens, your spirit's there. If I go down to Sheol, your spirit's there. So it's not like we're separated from God is really the, the idea I'm trying to express yeah. to the viewer, Ken, is that, you know, th this isn't some place of torment for the righteous. The only reason that word torment is used, again, is for deep personal anguish. And that's just for the unrighteous who are, you know, they, they know that their judgment is coming. But for the righteous, it's a it's a pleasant place with apparently some a spring of water. And I, I don't exactly know the rest of the details, but it's not a bad place. And, and the spirit of God is there. So and it, if, as far as I can tell, uh, there's angels there. I mean, there's someone's the gate. Someone's hanging out as an overseer. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think it's just a bunch of random departed spirits of men just making their own, you know, uh, Lord of the Flies type island. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, like there's probably some authority structure there. And just as the angels are commissioned to handle these things, um, I guarantee you there's there's angels there that are probably commissioned as the wardens, if you will, of this yeah. place. I think Raphael, personally. I exactly. Think he's, right. He's definitely one of them. And I think he's the angel that reaps. I think he's the one that actually does the reaping because, yeah. you know, when we think about Yeshua's own resurrection, right, there were angels that came and, you know, if we're to think that Yeshua's body was placed within a stone, right, within a sepulcher made of stone, what yeah. do we hear in Enoch 22? It's This is a place within a mountain of stone, smooth stone, right? And then you have a, a, a rock rolled over it, right? And upon his resurrection, angels came down and moved the stone Right. And they were involved in that part of his resurrection, which I believe angels also will be part of our resurrection as well. They're going to reap us out of Sheol. And um, I think there's parallels there through even just witnessing, like I said, Yeshua's own resurrection as the first fruits of the resurrection. But um, just even going with Ecclesiastes 12, where it says that, as, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Um, you know, that's also interestingly paralleled in second Baruch as well i keep going to this book because i love this book and we're going to get there guys we're going to get to this book and and uh, do what we're doing in enoch with second Baruch. but um it says in the third chapter here um he's saying to, to yahweh essentially if i have found grace in your sight first take my spirit that i may go to my fathers and not behold the destruction of my mother so he's he's seeing jerusalem essentially about to be destroyed but he's saying, take my spirit, as Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 tells us happens upon a, a mortal's death, is that the spirit goes to Yahweh. And then he says, and then Baruch says, that I may go to my fathers, which is another thing, Sean, that we see all through the scriptures. Am I correct in saying that? That it's yeah. referred to as, I'm going to go to my fathers, where my fathers are. And it even we even see this in Luke 16, where Abraham's bosom, right? That's, in my opinion, that's an idiomatic expression for where you gather to your fathers. Now, some people right. say, well, yeah. this can't be literal because Abraham's bosom, what was Abraham's bosom before Abraham existed, 
right? Like if it's called Abraham's bosom, yeah. that doesn't make sense because he didn't, he wasn't there from the very beginning of creation. And, and so what are we talking about here? This can't be literal. Well, no, everyone knew, all the Hebrews knew that they were gathered to their fathers and the Pharisees claim to be of Abraham. Yeah. Claim to be the father Abraham. So that was their head patriarch, right? So right. for them to say, we're, you know, we're, we're of our father Abraham and we'll go to Abraham's bosom upon our death. That's, that's, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Yeah. Well, but that, it's not a literal, it's not a literal term for a place. It's just an, an idiomatic expression of being gathered to your fathers. And one of those fathers happened to be Abraham's bosom or Abraham rather. Yeah, that's right. And what we see that post flood, we see, you know, all references in the modern canon of 66 referring back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the only end of the book of Jubilees, do you see them actually in Abraham's prayer? Does he actually reference back Adam, Mahalalel, Noah, Shem, those guys? But it seems to be there's a there's a shift, you know, so um, and, and, and I'm not saying there's a theological shift. It's just in the expression of terms of relating covenant language back to guys who kept the covenant faithfully. And that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is why even on Mount Sinai and Deuteronomy, and uh, I think it's uh, chapter 30, verse 20, it talks about, and I've all this covenant I've given you is the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I, and I want you guys to follow it too. You know, and so we, that's why those three patriarchs, because they were faithful and righteous, continually are referred back to seemingly, you know, post-Exodus, with all the Hebrews and Israelites further on, up into the days of, of you know Yeshua walking around in Judea, battling the bad doctrines of the Pharisees, and they were claiming Abraham as their descendant and their father, and Yeshua tests them on that even at one point. And he's like, yeah, if you were children of Abraham, you'd do his deeds, you know, in yeah. John chapter eight. But he's like, instead, you're doing the deeds of Satan because you're the devil's children. I don't think he's being literal, saying the devil had offspring. I just think that he's giving that a comparison of behavior makes you a child of God or a child of the devil, basically. So yeah. that's where, um, you know, we've got all these references always back to those three patriarchs. But when we start to dig in like books of Enoch and the book of Jubilees, you start to see that they did reference other patriarchs. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. But because Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were so faithful that they seem to be highlighted. They seem to be put on a pedestal in, in cultural reference from there forward. So. Yeah. Yeah, which which, you know, if we do, if we, if we ever have the opportunity to dissect Jasher, you know, and um, I would love to be able to take Jasher seriously because of all the, the amazing things it claims about Abraham, you know, and all the stuff he went through and did and, and the faith that he showed. And it gives you some understanding if if Jasher's story is true. Now, here I want to actually make a quick comment because, you know, we've mentioned Jasher a couple of times in different episodes and we've always prefaced it with if Jasher's true. Right. There is a in the book of Judges, it does reference a book called Jasher. That is the book of the just, the book of the righteous man. And the modern day version of Jasher we have seems to be dated back to a Spanish Hebrew, or excuse me, a Hebrew who lived in Spain uh, during the 1500s. And that's where people claim, well, it's not the same book that's referenced in Judges. I don't know. And there's no way to find out. It seems to be the only copy we have was the one that was written in the 1500s. Is it an exact copy of what the writer of the book of Judges was referring to? Excuse me, I'm saying the wrong the wrong book. Joshua chapter 10 refers to the book of Jasher. Yeah. So, so is the Chronicles. current yeah. yeah, is is in the 1500s when this this uh, Hebrew who was living in Spain, when he wrote the book of Jasher, was it him transcribing from an earlier copy that extended all the way back 
to the book that's being claimed in the book of jo uh, Joshua chapter 10. I don't really know, Ken, and there's, there's really doesn't seem to be any scholar that's been able to discern one way or another. So that's why we have to take with a grain of salt the book that we do have and try to line up the thematic content within the book of Jasher to see if it matches, just like what we're doing with the book of Enoch, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Even though we have a longer history of the book of Enoch. Um, but as you know, that's still, if Jasher's true, it would give a lot of credence to all the praise we see Hebrews 11 giving Abraham because we get all those stories fleshed out for us. Um, and we get to see you know, why he was considered such an amazing man who was called a friend of God. As Jubilees 19 also calls him a friend of God and expresses it was because of his disposition when Sarah died that he had finally passed the 10 tests in his life and he'd proven himself faithful to God. And so um, it was written on the heavenly tablets that he was a friend of God, according to Jubilees 19. And I think that you know, I would love to be able to jump into Jasher in the future and take it seriously. So we'll see if we can ever get there. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. man. Um, so yeah, Enoch 22, verse 7, we had already mentioned Abel and his voice speaking out of Sheol there. Um, if we go to Genesis 4.10, it says, uh, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Sean, my understanding of that is um, Yahweh is hearing Abel's soul in Sheol crying. Right. Yeah, that's that's why I get it too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting little, you know, canonical reference to what Enoch was shown in chapter 22 about Abel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, guys, if it sounds like we're belaboring this, it's if this is such an important concept, it really will make sense of so many things. I mean, one of the one of the things that I struggled with growing up was, you know, what I was taught in church was, uh, you know, if you die, where are you going? You going to heaven, you going to hell? That's what we're taught. You either go to heaven or you go to hell upon death. And I struggled with that concept for many reasons, um, reasons we've already discussed. But when you truly understand the concept of Sheol and the resurrection and what the heavens are and how they're defined in the scriptures and that there's a place above the firmament of heaven that's coming down to us on our earth that we get to resurrect into, things start to become a lot more um, interesting. You, you, you take on a new joy for the scriptures and your your faith, definitely my faith has increased since understanding the truth of the word, right? Right. The truth sets us free, Sean, right? And if we have half truths, we're only partially free. So I want to be, I want to be set free as I'm sure you guys do and, and just slough all these incorrect concepts and doctrines that were taught. And Sheol makes total sense when you, when you, you know, if you can keep your knee from jerking on this topic, which is, I know controversial and it's a hard and an emotional topic. You know, many of us have loved ones who are dead and we, we want to believe that they're in heaven and not in hell. So we've addressed that it's neither, right? And they're in a place right. of as long as life. yeah, as long as people don't can remember what we talked about that, you know, this word hell is a loose translation of Sheol, and it's a poor. It's taken on its own definition over time because the Catholic doctrine has absconded the definition of Sheol and turned it into a fiery torment, and that's all they call it is hell. Yeah, that is not what Scripture describes. What we're reading in Enoch twenty-two is a is a place for the righteous. And the unrighteous, but for the righteous souls, it's a place where there seems to be, it's it's not a bad place, right? So it's not a place of torment. It's not a place of fire. There's angels there. The spirit of God is there. 
um, it seems to be a place that's not bad. Quick question or a quick thing I wanted to bring up because um, a lot of folks, they let their personal experiences supersede the words of scripture. And they'll say, oh, well, I had a near-death experience and I saw, you know, my loved ones who were already dead. And they were in a really nice place and there was, you know, river that they were nearby and it was beautiful and they were at peace and they were joyful. And I'm like, yeah, we're reading about a collection of your forefathers in Sheol with a bright spring of water. So there's there's light, there's brightness, there's water, there's, you know, there's there's apparently it's within a mountain, so there's land of some sort. So the point is, it's this is not uh, this is not a, a place of torment or or chaoticness or this this is an organized place for the spirits of the righteous where the you you're gathered to your fathers awaiting the resurrection. Yeah. So you get people that say, "Well, I had a vision of heaven. I saw people that died before me, and they were in a great in a, a wonderful place, and they were happy and joyful." I'm like, "Yeah, there's not yet. Yeah, we don't we're not resurrected yet. We're never told we go to heaven." So. Sounds like Sheol to me. Sounds like the pleasant side of Sheol to me, you know, yeah. where you're gathered to your fathers to await the resurrection. Yeah, and it could uh, be that or it could simply them having a vision of what's to come at, at the resurrection within the New Jerusalem, right? Well, you know, the, I mean, the stories I'm talking about are people that claim near-death experiences where they say, you know, they they were there. It was tangible, right, yeah. real. And, the, yeah. you know, and I even have a family member who had, who had one as well. And he said that he saw his mother and his friends that had already passed on, you know, and that... um that it basically they said they told him you're not going to stay because it's not your time and then you know three days later he comes out of a coma and he's he's back and he lives another 15 20 years so um i i you know hmm. that's where i i would say that um you know that they didn't know what they were looking at but they were looking at the pleasant side of shoal where the where the righteous are assembled yeah you know yeah. so yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, and I have wondered, um, with these near-death experiences that we hear about, like when you die and you go to Sheol, do you like do you know you're going to Sheol? Do you, for those who came back, right? In your experience, what you just said, did they know upon the death that they went to Sheol? No. So it's weird. It's almost like we're not. It, we're upon the resurrection is when we're made perfect, right? Even in our yeah. understanding of everything. Right. So even at death, we're still potentially, you know. Well, it's, it's that's why we got in Revelation six. We got you know people crying out, "When are you going to avenge us?" Because remember, they can't really see what's going on in the land of the living, yeah. so they don't they don't know they can't discern the times to to be able, and they you know may not have. I don't know. This is kind of some conjecture, but they may not have the scroll of Daniel to read or the scroll of Isaiah or revelation, right? So they may not be able to to use that information like us, right? Like Ecclesiastes 9, 10 talks about, you know, in Sheol, there's no thought, planning, or wisdom. So there's like, they're not being able to interact in the world as we are to see the signs of the consummation of the times drawing near. And therefore, they're still kind of wondering, hey, you know, when are you going to avenge our blood? Yeah. You know, which essentially in that moment, they're also given the white robes, which is their resurrection. And it says, wait just a little longer you know, because they're about to be resurrected. And that's fascinating to me because they don't have bodies yet, but they've been given white robes. Yeah, that, that is an interesting order of operations taking place there, yeah. Right? So I, I imagine, like, is it Raphael? He's carrying a bunch of robes with him and passing them out. And, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm being silly, but... A little treat, right? Here you go. Here's your robe. <laughs> Just wait a little longer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I There's so much there because 
Yes. Um, I, I would say that the people do not know that they're going to Sheol. They just, they don't know, you know, if they, if they died thinking that they're going to go to heaven, they think, and they saw a pleasant place, they come back thinking they had a vision of heaven, you know, and that's fine. And that's, it's really fine. It doesn't really, you know, in my opinion, as long as you're not like running around preaching a doctrine that's not in the word anywhere, which says that we go live above the firmament with God, which we don't. You know, we there are uh, books. There are books out there that are pushing that type of narrative, though, right? Yeah, yeah. And but I'm saying is like, I don't. I've never read one that is an actual pastor that has that kind of experience that then writes a book. I'm, there probably is. Don't get me wrong. I just haven't read it myself personally or seen it. It's usually just someone that's not a pastor that doesn't study the word. They've had a near death experience, changed their life. They thought they went to heaven or they saw visions of angels or something. You know. And then they came back to the to the land of the living and continue to live after that. So, but um, yeah, I mean that's it's a it can be a really encouraging thing for someone that has that experience to they see their fathers and the friends that have already died or their family or their parents, and then they come back to the land of living because then they know there's more out there. There's something more there, and Enoch tells us what that more is, which is this receptacle called Sheol, and everyone there is waiting their ransom they're waiting their redemption of their bodies as romans chapter 8 talks about yeah right yeah and this is why it says it's a receptacle of, of departed spirits yeah absolutely man i feel the need sean um to bring up first samuel 28 i know that's a it's another controversial chapter that people go to to try to dispel the fact that there are spirits or souls in sheol alive and yeah. existing. Right. Yeah. So what, what then did Samuel really rise from Sheol for a moment? Yeah. And, um, my understanding is that if we take the text literally, and, um, I think we should, because it doesn't indicate anywhere that it isn't Samuel, which yeah. some people are, are, you know, promoting out there that maybe it was a familiar spirit or a, a, a deceptive spirit that's in, in, you know, imitating Samuel and, and, we're not to really trust in the fact that Samuel was really in Sheol and he was able to come up and prophesy. Well, no, I don't, I don't see that there. I think that's a lot of eisegesis. That is, that's um, a lot of, um, I mean, the whole story from start to finish, you know, all the characters involved, um, none of them, none of it, nowhere in the narration from that, the, you know, the book of first Samuel, no one says that it was a deceiving spirit. It says it was the spirit of Samuel and then it goes on as if that was what it was. It doesn't yeah. ever back up and explain to you, oh, by the way, that wasn't really Samuel. That was just the witch tricking Saul. Like it never says that. It says it was Samuel. Samuel says he was Samuel. The message that he gave came true, which he passes the Deuteronomy 18 test of a prophet. The witch is surprised and she's mad at Saul for tricking him, right? Yeah, you see someone that's considered an Elohim in stature coming up, which means they're a bright spirit, not a dark spirit, right? And yeah. then the Saul that the Saul himself takes the words as the words of Samuel, goes forward. Those words are fulfilled and carried out. Nowhere does it say that that was a false message from a deceiving, unfamiliar spirit. Yeah, so. exactly, Sean. And I would say that it's even venerated further in uh, the Book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, where it. it it, yeah, do you have that in front of you? Yeah, I do. I have. You're able to read that. Yeah. So in in chapter 46, uh, starting at 19, it says, "Before the time of his eternal sleep," referring to Samuel. 
Samuel called men to witness before the Lord and his anointed. And he said, I have not taken anyone's property, not so much as a pair of shoes. And no man accused him. Even after he had fallen asleep, he prophesied and revealed to the king his death and lifted up his voice out of the earth in prophecy to blot out the wickedness of the people. So to me, right there, Sean, there is another witness. You know, And I know sure. you talk about the, the canonicity of you know, the book of Sirach, which is in other, you know, <laughs> other yeah. Bibles out there. Yeah, it's, it used to be in the KJV. I mean, it was one of the main books. Um, it was just recently removed, actually. So it's also, the, also called the book of Ecclesiasticus. That's right, yeah. But it debunks. What I'm getting at is that that debunks Ooh. people's yeah. conjecture surrounding 1 Samuel 28 and that not being Samuel, being in yeah. Sheol, coming out of, yeah. So what we're getting is the context of Sheol from Enoch 22, the application of Sheol from a parable that Jesus uses and on the day of the great white throne judgment, as it's referred to as Hades in the Greek. Um, and we're getting the application of this context as it's described by both Enoch and Yeshua. We're getting an application of that in 1 Samuel 28 with the spirit, the departed spirit of Samuel rising for just a moment since it clearly revelation six enoch 22 verse six and seven says that these spirits are still able to be talking right so there's still some consciousness there to the point of them talking and i i love the actually that when samuel rises in that chapter i love it the first thing he says is who disturbed my sleep yeah. he's like grumpy you know he woke up like well how dare you bring me back to this chaos of this world i was down there enjoying my rest yeah you know exactly. because in that word rest itself almost needs to be defined because yeah, what a sure. lot of people don't realize is that the the unrest is attributed in context to the oppression of sinners on the righteous. And the rest is where the righteous can flourish in righteousness and peace. Mm -hmm. The peace that comes from, from the righteousness of God is considered rest. You know, and that's where you don't have rest when you're under, you know, oppression or persecution from the unrighteous, the ungodly. And that is yeah. where, you know, we get that further on when it talks about the consummation of the times and how the Messiah returns. And he, you know, he yeah. delivers, he takes the godless away so that they can no longer um, cause oppression to the righteous. I think we're actually going to read about that later in like the, the 90s of the book of Enoch, chapter like 94, 95 or something. So, yeah. So in, in 2021-ish when we get there. Right. Yeah. That's right. Because <laughs> we're running to the end of this episode and we just covered two chapters. So yeah. we um, wanted to do our due diligence on this chapter, Sean, right? For, for you guys who are wondering, why are you guys like, yeah, this is an important concept. And it's, it's one of those chapters that gets thrown out there by people who do not subscribe to this book whatsoever. And they say this right here because of this chapter and other chapters, but this chapter solely, we can't trust in, in, the, in what's being taught in this book. But guys, yeah. it, it, as Sean and I hopefully were able to, to do here, we, um, we believe that it's all throughout the canonized scriptures. It's a concept yeah, well, that's all through there. You know, and we even didn't even touch on, uh, what is it, First Peter 3, 19 or 20, where it talks about Jesus went to the place where the spirits bef during the, before the flood were imprisoned. Yeah. And, he, and yeah. he preached to them. You know, we didn't even touch on that. And that, that was, you know, back from chapter 21, um, just simply because we wanted to spend as much time on this place of Sheol, which is where it seems to be the spirits of men are assembled and um, in different places for them. So we've got, you know, a mixture of play. You know, the, the rebellious angels had their own place of imprisonment. Um, we've got uh, the spirits of the Nephilim. That's the question we haven't really come across yet is where are they, where are they held? 
of course, we haven't really gotten to that part yet in Jubilees where it talks about nine tenths of them were, were sent down to, to um, the, the underworld and, and one tenth of them was, you know, was left out on the land to torment, and oppress and tempt mankind under the rule of, of Mastima, which is also called Satan in Jubilees chapter 10, verse 12. So, you know, we've got the the stars that transgress their ordained commands there. We see where they were imprisoned. We see where the rebellious angels that laid with women, where they were imprisoned. And we also see where the righteous men and the unrighteous men are held after they die, waiting either judgment or the resurrection. And um, and we've got direct references to both of these by the epistle writers, the apostles and Yeshua himself. And I think that it's strong. Uh, and then, of course, the psalmist David talks about Sheol and you know, we've got so many mentions here that uh, Hosea, the prophet, talks about it. And this was a real concept they all understood and believed. This was this was this is not new information. It's not Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, this is a this is a reality of the creation model, and that's the part that I hope people can kind of understand the the foundational framework of the creation. One of them was the abyss that was created, the abysses, if you will, like you like you mentioned in Jubilees chapter two, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, we've anything else uh, further on this one, Ken, that you want to go over? I think that I think we covered quite a bit. As you said, there is there's so many references in the scriptures. You, it would take us a very long time to go through them yeah. all. We didn't we wanted to select a, a few of them that, you know, were or highlight a few of them that are prominent ones to use in reference right. to Enoch 22. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you, man, that. We need to understand the creation model better and it is part of the creation model and and the sooner we're able to to do that and to give way to yahweh's word and to understand the place that he created for us and one of those places is sheol the better it is going to be for us and our witness yeah th this topic of sheol is so important for people to get as a contextual framework to understand all its mentions and applications in scripture that's why i made it a branch on my context tree for my channel because it's one of the major themes to understand throughout scripture to have clarity, not just on, on stuff and it's briefly mentioned, but on the judgments that come and what, where these people are coming from, what's going on, why, you know, there's a first and a second judgment. And so for clarity on these ideas, it's so important that we understand what God has introduced to us as this concept of Sheol through his prophets and through his son, as he taught on it. And, you know, if you don't understand it, you're that's why we see so many people grasping at straws in a you know theological darkness and coming up with wild theories is because they have they have yet to understand the reality of Sheol as mentioned all throughout scripture. Yeah, so right. um guys, this has been a wonderful episode. This has been episode seven of Honor of Kings. Uh, we're dug into chapter 21, 22 of Enoch. Um as always, leave your questions and comments down below. In the video uh, like share and subscribe uh, we really appreciate you for joining us and um anything any last words again as a yeah thank you for joining us guys and um hopefully you're edified with this discussion that sean and i were having and um just pray if you if you're still skeptical about it and you're unsure just pray to the father he'll give you the answers that you want and that you need i should say um but yeah john thanks for the discussion brother and uh we'll see all you guys next week Yes. Thanks guys. Uh, a lot of people have already asked us about how they can support us and contribute to what we're doing here. So that's in the details below in the video. You can check us out on our Patreon page. So if you consider doing that, we appreciate you and we love you for it. Um, other than that, join us next week, E922. Guys, we're going to be looking at the tree of life. It's going to be great. 
you know, 23, we probably, probably make it through 25 or 26. So we're going to be looking at the tree of life, the throne of Yeshua. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a fun episode. So I hope you join us next week. Okay. All right. All right. See you later.